Hello and welcome to the EMVR 203 Knowledge, Ethics, and Environment podcast. Uh, Today we are beginning the third and final unit of the course. That is where we've closed ecosystems and we are now beginning the unit about decolonizing nature and society. I look forward to this unit because it's our opportunity to start thinking about concrete and specific ways that we can respond to many of the challenges that we have been outlying at the beginning of the course. And I'm also delighted to uh, announce that today's episode will feature an interview with Dr. Jen Gobby. Jen is actually a graduate of the McGill School of Environment, and she's currently an activist scholar uh, who's a post doctoral researcher at the Department of Geography, Planning and Environment at Concordia University in Montreal. And excitingly, her new book, More Powerful Together, Conversations with Climate Activists and Indigenous Land Defenders, is out now. It's available through Fernwood Publishing, and it's actually the book that our chapter, uh, is our reading this week, is from. So without further ado, we'll continue on to the interview with Jen Gobby. I'd like to welcome Dr. Jen Gobby to the EMBR 203 Knowledge, Ethics, and Environment podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Jen. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So maybe I can just begin uh, today with an a little bit of context. In our course, our guiding question for our reflections and our readings this week is, who is resisting harm to ecological communities? And in the second chapter of your book, More Powerful Together, Conversations with Climate Activists and Indigenous Land Defenders, this is uh, the chapter that we read this week, you link the climate and inequality crises in Canada and you frame them as intersectional problems. So I'm wondering if you can unpack that term uh, intersectional for us and help us try to answer this question of who is resisting harm to ecological communities in the Canadian context. Okay, so I'll start first with talking about what what is meant by intersectional. Um, so it's, it's a, a term that comes out of um, uh, black feminism. So black feminists in the, I think in the 80s came up with this concept of intersectional feminism, which is thinking about how <clears throat> the um, oppression of women or gender inequality intersects, is linked, connects with other forms of oppression like racism and classism. <clears throat> so that's where the term comes from. And then recent last couple of years, there's this push towards intersectional environmentalism, which I'm trying to think through and and promote in that in that chapter. Um, So for a long time, let's say since since the beginning of uh, sort of uh, the environmental movement, the mainstream environmental movement in North America, it's been very much a white led uh, sort of uh, sort of upper upper class white movement to sort of protect nature so you can go there on weekends <laughs> and have your fancy cottage or go for vacations in it, you know, and protect it for your recreational pleasure. And so that's sort of where the environmental movement came from. And from that came conservation movement, which is like, let's put aside 
these pieces of, of nature to protect them from humans. So it's a very you know, specific legacy of the environmental movement, but in recent years with the climate crisis and really seeing how people, people starting to really see how um, the climate impacts are really impacting certain kinds of people more than others is, is disproportional impacts and also disproportional contribution to the problem. Not everyone's creating greenhouse gas emissions and driving the crisis. Some people are way more. So it tends to be uh, racialized, um, racialized communities struggling with poverty, um, et cetera, indigenous communities who are on the front lines of climate impacts who are being hit first and hardest. So this is sort of teaching the, the mainstream environmental movement slowly that this is not about protecting this outside thing, this nature that's somehow outside of human civilization so that we could benefit from it, but actually um, our lives are dependent on it and certain people's lives are already being completely, completely disrupted. And those people tend to be racialized communities struggling with, with poverty and um, et cetera. So just really trying to understand the ways that the, the domination of the environment by humans intersects with the domination of women by men, uh, of, of people of color by white folks, et cetera. So really understanding the intersections and it's complex. These are complex interactions and they, um, they sort of manifest in all kinds of different ways, but really trying to understand the complexities of, of how social inequality, social injustice, and environmental destruction are all playing out in an interwoven way. So <clears throat> that's that's my um, my thoughts on the intersectionality piece. But in terms of who's resisting, mm -hmm. um, because certain people's lives are being impacted first and foremost, and they are <clears throat> seeing most clearly how alarming uh, the climate and environmental crises are. And it deeply impacts not only their, their lives, but their livelihoods, their cultures, um, <clears throat> their communities, their families. So those people are standing up and resisting. So those people in Canadian context are largely indigenous communities who <clears throat> have been not only facing climate impacts, but also facing a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure and a lot of, yeah, a lot of pressure from extractive uh, industry, so pipeline companies, mining companies, uh, hydro dam companies. To there's a lot of pressure from um, of these industries trying to push onto their territories and build these projects uh, against against the consent of the indigenous community. So not only are indigenous folks witnessing and experiencing the impacts of cl uh, changing climate, they're also first and foremost hit by the extractive industry trying to expand into their territories, violating their rights, and um, and so, so what we see is the um, climate justice, the anti-pipeline and indigenous land defense movements being really, really, really led by the indigenous folks. And I, I talk a lot about that in the book because I really feel like the, the biggest hope we have for really transforming our econ economies and political systems and social systems away from extractivism and oppression towards something more just and sustainable is a you know, settler, white folks, environmentalists getting getting behind these indigenous folks in the front lines and giving all the all our efforts and support and uh, putting our privilege towards helping those folks uh, and, and actively supporting them. So yeah, that's who yeah. I see. So that's who I see standing up and resisting the, the ongoing destruction of the climate, the environment and the uh, 
yeah the waters okay. and lands of canada okay thank you thank you so much and actually this helps me um because I'm, I'm thinking about this quote that you share in your chapter. It's an, a wonderful quote by Coburn. Uh, and it states, at their most powerful, Indigenous movements move beyond resistance to resurgence. So I'm thinking about what you've just saying there. And the, the quote finishes, so we, it moves beyond resistance to resurgence. That is the joyful affirmation of individual and collective Indigenous self-determination. So given this kind of double burden that you were just identifying for the way that Indigenous communities have pressures, both from the effects of climate change and from these um, kind of territorial incursions from uh, extractive industries, I'm really interested in this, these, these, this double kind of response of resistance and resurgence. Can you speak a little bit to this distinction? What makes resurgence distinct from resistance and why is that distinction so important for us to understand and actually I'd, I'd also be interested in hearing what your thoughts on whether or not you think indigenous non-indigenous peoples um interested in as you're saying you know supporting the decolonization um processes in canada can they can we help support both resistance and resurgence? Is there a place in both of those or perhaps not? Hey, that's, that's a great, great question. And I want to start by saying that I'm really not uh, an expert or a scholar of, of Indigenous resistance or resurgence. Um, I, I, my specialty is, is in thinking about social movements and thinking about uh, social transformation in Canada and thinking about climate justice. But because of those interests of mine, I have read a lot of um, literature on Indigenous resistance and resurgence. And I'd like to say that anyone who wants to learn more about these things, there's amazing scholarship uh, there's, uh, of Indigenous folks in so-called Canada who are writing about resurgence and resistance. So we have Leanne Simpson, uh, Glenn Coulthard, Tayaka Alfred. There's a lot of great scholars. So I'd, I'd, I'd urge you to, to read Indigenous folks writing about these things because I, uh, I probably don't have a a full grasp, but I'll share what I, I do understand. So where resistance is, is the actual standing up and saying no to, to you know, the violation of, of Indigenous people's rights, to saying no to unwanted projects, to saying no to the ongoing colonial relations that sort of define the relationship between Indigenous uh, nations and the Canadian state. So saying no to those kinds of ongoing oppressive um, dynamics. So it's it, the resistance is, is the saying no. And there's been a lot of that going and it's been ongoing since Europeans landed on the shores of Turtle Island. All those hundreds of years ago, uh, indigenous people have been resisting continuously. And the evidence of that is that they're still here despite yeah, generations and generations of act active policies to try to get rid of indigenous people. So, this is amazing and it's of course absolutely necessary and it's ongoing and it's very inspiring and it's it's led to the actual stopping of many many pipelines that environmentalists have been trying to stop including energy east here in quebec including um the northern gateway pipeline in british columbia so indigenous resistance has been very effective and very important and indigenous resurgence is happening in sort of tandem with 
in people saying no and standing up. And it's the revitalization of indigenous cultures, li livelihoods, um, languages, uh, economies, governance systems, um, worldviews, arts, etc. It's like it's the, the 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 flourishing of all that the Canadian state has tried to uh, suppress in order to uh, to keep indigenous people uh, from from indigenous indigenous folks really pose a threat to the Canadian status quo and the ongoing Canadian economy, which uh, makes its it gets its wealth and power from from extractive uh, extracting from land. Uh, much of these lands on indigenous territories. Uh, so, so yeah, anyway, so uh, the, the indigenous resistance uh, and resurgence are both extremely, extremely um, powerful and uh, very, a lot of it is happening all over um, Turtle Island right now. Um, and in terms of uh, our role settlers, non-indigenous people's role in supporting that, it's, it's in resistance that we have an active role, an active and supportive role to play. So by supportive, I mean not telling indigenous what to people to do, not telling indigenous people what to do in terms of defending their lands and waters, but at providing active support in terms of financial support, labor support, volunteering your time, going to the front lines, um, sending donations, whatever it is. That's where our, our fights can converge. As in resistance, in terms of res resurgence, that's uh, a space, an indigenous only kind of space. Um, and we're, but we have our own, our own kind of yes. So if indigenous resistance is the no and resurgence is the yes. So settler also have the no, the resisting destruction, exploitation, oppression. And we have a different yes. And our yes is not about necessarily uh, revitalizing Things that are in our in our in our ancestry in our in our historical past, and then trying to bring those things because maybe some of our lineages don't have something to go back to that were based on on uh, on care of the land and reciprocity and you know mutually beneficial beneficial relationships with the land and each other. Maybe we don't have that to go back to, so we need to be creating, not appropriating indigenous culture, uh, but recreating or not recreating, creating anew creating a from from scratch some sort of cultures worldviews economies political systems governance systems um, that care for the 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 natural systems that are that uphold human rights that are about equality that are about um, yeah so so we have our own it's not resurgence, maybe it's surgeons, but it, it, and it's not about appropriating indigenous ways, it's about creating something. So we have our own yes, that we have to struggle to figure out what that is, what we can go towards and making sure that that is uh, not, um, not taking space on lands or in, uh, in the media away from indigenous uh, resurgence, if that makes any sense. So yeah. it needs to be a dialogue but uh, we have our own path to walk with. Settlers have their own path to walk when figuring out the yeah what we, what we want to say yes to, what we want to create. Okay, that makes yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me. And I mean, I really appreciate you gesturing towards the scholarship of Indigenous authors whose expertise um, can help inform this conversation, and that you draw on in the chapter. 
uh, and that your expertise is in social transformation. I do have a question for you about that and your thoughts on, on what's needed. Um, in the chapter, you also talk about Peter Deverne's work in the book, Environmentalism of the Rich. And he argues that environmentalists need to find their spirit of outrage again if the movement wants to pursue transformative change. So I'd really love to hear your thoughts on, on whether you agree, what do you think is requisite for transformative change, and, and whether you think outrage is a part of that fight, um, and if so, why? A lot, a lot of questions in there, but maybe you can just speak to the place of of like what what is needed for transformative change and whether you think outrage is a part of that equation. Well, when you look at the social movements throughout history that have have changed everything that have you know you know made huge change, um, including including indigenous land defense movements, including the Black Lives Matter movements, including women's suffrage including the yeah, abolition civil rights, like these movements were all imbued with the energy of outrage. Like this is not okay. This is not, it's never been okay. And it's just like pressure building where uh, injustice is just, um, um, it's building to the point of something has to give, something has to change. And I think the white led environmental movement has never had that because there's only so fired up you can get about protecting this piece of land over there that you want to maybe go visit in the summer. It's very different from the kind of energy that goes into protecting your family and your, your loved ones and the lands and waters on which you and your generations past have, have completely depended on for your lives. That's a very different kind of, of standing up, right? It's a very different kind of defending. It's, it's a lot more visceral. So, uh, so this, this I, I think this kind of outrage of is it, yeah it's necessary and and so but the the problem is is that there's still there's still a lot of segments of Canadian society who are not feeling directly impacted by climate change that do not feel uh, directly impacted by the mines and the pipelines leaking and the because they maybe live in cities and they have the wealth to buffer them from these impacts. And so where do they get their outrage? Because they're important too. They're, they're important actors and in, uh, in, uh, agents of change too, but may not be feeling directly impacted. And that's where really doing your homework and learning about what's really going on on the front lines, what's going on in maybe communities a hundred miles north from you, what's going on in, in maybe racialized communities in your city that are, are you know, currently being, uh, you know, really suffering from the impacts of COVID because they're already suffering poverty and they are the people who are, are on the front lines of the care industry, whatever it is, like really figure out what's going on and who's being impacted by the various crises we're facing. And I think if you do enough reading and enough listening, I think the spirit of outrage can, can, uh, can, can 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 uh, can um, inform your work and 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 I think I think that's what it takes because um, the, the kind of fight that is necessary to address climate change doesn't come from sort of hypothetical pondering and and, and thinking about what might be better. It comes from like oh my god, we've got to save our lives because you know because shit's on the line and 
and it's very, uh, it's very urgent. So the sense of urgency, uh, which I think because climate is sort of, climate change is sort of slow moving or it seems slow moving and it seems like the uh, impacts are really diffused over time and space, it, it may not uh, spark this like urgency, um, but we need to feel it, <laughs> feel it yeah. through empathy with the people who are actually impacted right now by hurricanes, by floods, by fires uh, and by, you know, going <clears throat> uh, incursion onto land from the extractive industry. Like, so yeah, I think that's fire. <laughs> yeah. That's fire inside that's gonna take, uh, to, to get enough people setting up that we can build enough uh, um, collective power <clears throat> to to make the changes that are necessary. It's true that there, I, it seems to me that what you're highlighting is the place of justice and injustice in lighting that fire too, or of, of tending or fueling that fire. Um, yeah, that feels really central to me. So I noticed in the chapter you, you talk about system change, uh, and that's something that's necessary to help us undo these intersecting harms, get at this problem of injustice. Um, so when we're thinking about how the climate crisis intersects with settler colonialism, environmental racism, for example, classism, gender oppression, all of these other kinds of domination. So why is it that system change is the way that you come at this, you've got this kind of tangle of intersecting problems and your response is we need to change the system. Can you help us understand why that's your response? Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanna start by saying that it is something I, I, I try to address in, in the book, in my work. I learned about it through being part of the climate justice movement. I mean, it's been a long time that systems change, not climate change has been a, a big banner, big motto of these giant climate marches over the last decade. And when I first started seeing those, I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. What does that mean? And then, so I started to try to learn about that reading Naomi Klein's work really helped me understand why and what. So I encourage anyone to read, for example, um, this changes everything and other other stuff she's written um but there's other people also writing about about systems change um but i have to say that that something else i learned in the movement so when i started uh, organizing with climate justice montreal uh they were giving workshops which i i started to help with and one of the uh one of the tools in the workshops is learning about how to identify root causes so they'd use this uh, model, this tree with the, the, the leaves, the branches, the, 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 the trunk and the roots. And they'd show that when you, when you have, when you're looking at like climate change, you look at like the leaves are the symptoms or the leaves and the branches are the symptoms, let's say like a, a hurricane or, you know, economic impacts or these kind of things. But then the trunk is the sort of institutions that are allowing the continuation of the greenhouse gases, which are leading to these impacts. But then what are the root causes? What, what are the root causes, the, the sort of worldviews, the, the economic systems, et cetera, that are allowing those institutions to stay in place to perpetuate those symptoms? Mm. Okay, so I learned about that through being part of movements as well. And um, so the root causes, when you start to dig down, okay, what is, because if you look at if you look at climate policy in Canada or things like carbon pricing, these kind of things, these are 
these are solutions or strategies for for tackling the symptoms they are not strategies for tackling the the trunk like the institutions or the root causes and that's why they're not working that's why there's been efforts across the world for three decades now to stem the rise of global emissions and they're not working it's because they're not tackling the root causes and because when you look at the root causes like why are uh, emissions continuing to rise well it's because our economic system which prioritizes uh, which is capitalist and uh, prioritizes economic growth above all above taking care of the life support systems that is nature uh, but cares more about that than human welfare like economic growth is like the the god <laughs> it's the end goal of the and and so that until we tackle that um uh, we're gonna we're gonna see that all our, our, our attempts to to tackle the climate crisis are gonna are gonna be stymied because we're we're not actually stemming the actual things that's that that's perpetuating that's constantly feeding. Um, so so I think that's what it's gonna take. And it, so a lot of people think, well, like okay, you can't take down capitalism, so you might as well just do carbon pricing. <laughs> but if if carbon pricing is ever gonna work, we might as well at least try. Capitalism hasn't been around forever. It's only been around for, I don't know, like somewhere in the realm of, uh, of a century or so or two or something. It's not been around for a long time. And we've had, there's been a multiplicity of kinds of economies, economic systems around the world through different cultures and times. Let's try other things that can, that actually can prioritize human well-being and ecological well-being. So, so I think, I think it's really important to and and that intersectionality piece you uh, brought up earlier is part of that. It's like if you want to if you want to be effective in building strategies to tackle climate change, understand the systems that are driving it, and understanding the way those systems are are leading to um, impacts to all kinds of people through all kinds of multiple systems of oppression, this kind of thing. So I think yeah, tackling the root causes and the roots of the crisis are in the economic and political and social systems. And so that's where we have to, that's where our targets have to be. That's okay. where we have to try to uh, deconstruct and rebuild so that they have, they're, they're creating the kind of incentive structures, the kind of systems behaviors over time that are conducive to life on earth. I mean, it makes sense to me, but there's this quote that I can't recall who who should be credited for this quote, but uh, the idea is it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And you're absolutely right. Even if we go as far back as mercantile capitalism, we're only going, you know, 300 years, something like that. It's not so long in the grand scheme of human economies. Mm -hmm. um, but the but all it takes is a generation for something to to sort of feel totally ensconced and natural in the way things are so the the that idea somehow that that making a substantial you know revising the at the system level is um it's deep it's about as deep as we can go like you said it's the roots right it's mm -hmm. it's it's um mm -hmm. that's big it work it's it's the economic system, but also like what keeps the economic system in in place is the political system whereby the people most benefiting from capitalism are the people making the decisions and creating the policies 
and setting the economic agendas, right? So that's why it seems so uh, stuck. It would it would move pretty quickly if you had uh, a more genuinely democratic and egalitarian political system mm. where where the people who are on the front lines were actually at the decision-making table. You'd see very different decisions getting made, very different economic policies happening. Uh, so that's where I think... <clears throat> So I say it's not just the economic system, it's also the political system. Yeah. And that like those people are like right now, uh, like the, the, the current political, uh, current, sorry, climate policy in Canada, the pan-Canadian framework on climate change and clean growth, the, in the formulating, in the development of that giant plan, Indigenous people were explicitly excluded from the decision-making tables. They were sort of consulted but they were the people who are most impacted by climate change were not invited. They were actually actively excluded from the decision-making tables that created those policies. Think about that. You know, that, yeah. so that needs to change. And so yeah. that is, you know, that explains yeah. some of the, that feeling of, of, of un, unmutability or unchangeability well, because <laughs> the people making the decisions are the people benefiting from the status quo. So they're, keep, they're actively keeping it all in place so so uh, yeah so the yeah. economic system the political system so there's a there's an intersection there too but there's also that sense of i mean i, I certainly when i hear you say um something like that it it wants to provoke my own spirit of outrage i'll tell you that right now <laughs> okay so let me ask you one more question here as we wrap things up at the end of your chapter you talk about how the path forward in the face of both climate and racial inequality crises in Canada involves, quote, the practice of settler Canadians following the leadership of indigenous peoples who are actively protecting their lands and waters. And you've talked about that today as well. So what I'd like to ask you as a sort of note to end on is, you know, are you seeing examples of this in your own research, in your own activism? What does it look like? Do you have stories you can share with us about that? Yeah, so so in terms of systems change and root causes, it's it's about economic and and political systems, but it's also about our worldviews and our value systems. And right now, <clears throat> the dominant um, worldview is a worldview embedded with white supremacy, and part of and and the Black Lives Matter movement has been doing an amazing. Uh, job and very very hard work at raising up the, um, the the ongoing white supremacy that imbues all our all our systems and so part of white supremacy is white folks being very comfortable at taking leadership and thinking they have the solutions and the vision forward and they're like hey you know what but I, I've learned about indigenous stuff I'm going to ask indigenous people if they want to join me in my coalition for a better world or whatever this is this is this is kind of the the norm in the environmental movement is okay we need to get indigenous people to join our project meanwhile indigenous people are on the front lines actively stopping pipelines actively de defending lands and doing this work every day of their lives and we're like hey we got to get them to join the environmental movement so that's that's white supremacy in action in the environmental movement right and that needs to change because <laughs> that is not a way to build relationships and that is not, it's not a way to build transformative movements. So, so I've been thinking a lot about how 
how white folks, settler folks need to learn how to play a supportive role. So not the starring role in the movie of transforming Canada, but uh, what do they call that? The supporting, yeah. you know, what is the person in the Grammys who gets, it's, it's a supporting role. Yeah. I think it is. It's a, like best actress in a supporting role. Yeah, yeah. So we can be the best, but we got to be the best in a supporting role uh, in transforming this country because, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why we might not have the answers and there's a lot, but we do matter. Like we do uh, really like, it's, it's not like, oh, I'm a white person. I'm bad. I'm just going to go watch Netflix for the rest of my life. No, uh, this battle involves everyone and we, we've got to work together, but we need to be following the leadership of those on the front lines, those most impacted. Um, and so, so I, I do see this a lot. There's a lot of efforts for this going on. BC has been sort of building better relations a lot longer than Quebec has in, in, in the environmental movement. Uh, and uh, there's there's been co coalitions, for example, of, of, against the Trans Mountain Pipeline that have been genuinely led by Indigenous folks and the environmental NGOs have been uh, just uh, helping support, helping fund, helping support, but not holding, uh, not not de determining the strategic direction, not, not calling the shots. So this is an amazing thing. Um, we need to be working towards that kind of thing. And I, I see it in, in my, my own activism. So I've, I've moved a bit from organizing um, in the climate movement to, to being a climate activist who uh, spends their time and effort supporting indigenous struggles, indigenous-led struggles. So I try, to, I try to do that more. And I've also been uh, also trying to work with some environmental groups to help them um, <laughs> Uh, see, see, see some of these ongoing failures to build uh, just and uh, uh, mutually respectful relations. <laughs> so I, I do some of that, but also in research, um, this, this, this dynamic also exists in research where uh, settler researchers are like, I want to do research that involves Indigenous people. I have this great idea. Now I'm going to go see which Indigenous communities want to do my idea with me. <laughs> and so what, I, what I've tried to, the practice I've tried to do is um, of just acknowledging I have this these skills as a researcher, I have funding as a researcher. Now I'm gonna uh, you know, offer that to some indigenous organizations. I know, hey, is there something you'd like researched? And that's what I did with uh, one of my postdoc <clears throat> projects. I, I got in touch with Indigenous Climate Action, an amazing organization in Canada. And I said, you have something? And they said, yeah, we, there's been a research project we wanted to do a long time around uh, uh, critical policy analysis of the pan-Canadian framework. Let's, let's do that. And so there I had my postdoc project, but I didn't go at it with like, I have an idea. No, it's like, I have the time and I have the funding. What's your idea? Mm. So, so that, and that, I mean, that, I didn't, that took me a while to, to learn how to do it. I'm still trying to figure that out. Cause I mean, everyone loves their own ideas. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean that's, I yeah. Know. We're partial to them. Yeah. But, but I mean, that I'm learning so much that I never, I, I never would have actively uh, embarked in a project around policy as a social movement theorist kind of thing. <laughs> so, but now I'm learning about the policy world and engaging with policy, which has been really ex expanding to me. And that's part of like something that was uh, a gift to me because I was uh, uh, open, <laughs> asking someone else for an idea, a research idea, as opposed to going ahead with my own. So yeah, learning to play a supportive role and knowing that that's the most like 
where your impact can be. Like, right. Really, yeah. I think that would be mean, really transformative. Uh, so in terms of its, I mean, in terms of the, the shift of power, huge, but also I think in terms of the, um, you know, there's a lot of research that gets done and sits on shelves. And what you're talking about is finding ways to make the research really speak to community needs. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something, uh, yeah, that, that sounds empowering and inspiring mm -hmm. and energizing as opposed to uh, creating work because there's a question that might be of interest um but is it, it helps keep those stakes where they should be which is really making um making things better you know mm -hmm. or, or at least working towards that in a in a mm -hmm. conscious way yeah yeah mm -hmm. oh wow jen <laughs> thank you so much for your time um and your perspective this, this has been really really helpful for us Thanks again. Well, thank you for having me and thanks for inviting me to have this conversation and thanks for reading the, the chapter in the class. I'm, it makes me very happy to know it's out there getting read. Oh thanks yeah, so it's great read. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Face.